You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 16th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Might international criticism stay Israel's hand? What can be gleaned from two election victories for the centre-right and a trainload of marooned MEPs scramble to make the obvious jokes before everyone else does? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Latika Burke and Andrew Thompson will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have Monocle Radio's obituary for the Finnish president and peacemaker Mati Atasari, who has died aged 86. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Latika Burke, London-based correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and by Andrew Thompson, a Latin American specialist and regular contributor to The Latin News, a London paper founded in 1967 to provide expert political, economic and security analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean. Hello to you both. Hello. Evening, Andrew. Um, Latika, outnumbered by Andrews. Andrew, outnumbered <laughs> by Australians. Um, me, outnumbered by my guests, but that happens uh, all the time. Uh, a- Andrew, this is your first appearance on the Monocle Daily. Welcome. Um, if you would, if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners, explain a bit about the journey that has brought you here to this obvious high point. Right, the, the long and meandering journey is that <laughs> I was um, born and brought up in uh, South America, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil. Um, came to this country to go to university uh, and then went back out again as a foreign correspondent. We're talking prehistory, 1980s, (laughs) 1990s, when I was based in Mexico City, then Sao Paulo in Brazil, then Buenos Aires in in Argentina. Um, I then spent far too long working for the BBC and now I claim to be semi, semi-retired semi and doing freelance journalism. The reality is I, uh, I've got too much work at the moment. <laughs> oh, no, as a freelance, you never say that. Yes, that is, no, that is the say terrible, <laughs> terrible yeah. temptation of the fates. Uh, we will be returning to Latin America later in the show, but we will start with Israel's war with Hamas. In the hours after Hamas assaulted Israel last Saturday, leaving more than 1,300 people dead, the world was largely and rightly united in horror and solidarity. In the days since, as the severity of Israel's actual and threatened response has become clearer, that unity has frayed. Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, has been the most forthright and or tactless, likening Israel's bombardment of Gaza to the destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto by the Nazis, but he has not been altogether alone. Criticism has been issued by Brazil, Indonesia, South Africa, Ireland and Norway, among others. Um, Latika, First of all, has Israel possibly overestimated uh, global tolerance for what it wants to do in Gaza? Unclear, though, that still is. No, I think Israel has actually been tempered by the US. I Mm. mean, we still have not seen a ground war take place. And I think most of us would have expected that to have have taken place by now. I think the White House has been handling this extremely well and they are probably the only uh, people who can get in Israel's ear and put some guardrails around how Israel does respond. So I'm quite perplexed by these constant calls for the restraint here because 
As far as I can see, yes, of course, uh, I think the siege is barbaric and Israel has restored some water supplies to Gaza, although that has been disputed today. Overall, we have actually seen them hold back as they try and get some sort of arrangements out for civilians. Whatever Israel does is not, of course, going to be enough for its critics. Um, And this is going to be, I think, a very bloody episode coming up. But in the long run, I think, given that it has been now more than a week, Mm. this is longer than we would have expected from Israel. Uh, Andrew, let's prevail upon your Latin American expertise. Um, Gustavo Petro's comments uh, were just bewilderingly crass, uh, and he's not so stupid that he doesn't see how crass that is, likening Israel of all places to something or somewhere like that the Nazis would have run or liking what it does to things the Nazis would do. But how representative of cross Latin America is his sentiment? I don't think it's terribly representative. And, and I think there's, um, there's an interesting divergence. Um, the foreign ministries of most major Latin American countries have all issued statements that uh, we can sort of recognize are quite common in the rest of the world. So a condemnation of terrorism coupled with a call to protect um, the human rights of civilians in Gaza Strips, follow in the Gaza Strip, follow humanitarian aid and so on. And Colombians, of course, being under fewer illusions than most about the reality of trying to live alongside terrorists. Yes. But what has happened is that those official statements have gone out. And the trouble is that a lot of Latin American presidents uh, talk all the time, uh, give us their thoughts without filtering them very much <laughs> on X, the former Twitter. So uh, Gustavo Petro, the, uh, the Colombian president, it was like he was ranting um, on on social media and forced his own foreign ministry to withdraw a balanced statement because it just looked too embarrassing and come up with something even more anodyne. Now, that's not just one country. Uh, in Mexico... Uh, populist left-wing president Andrés Manuel López Obrador um, said on social media that he couldn't say, he couldn't condemn anyone because um, he didn't want to interfere in, in anyone's affairs, which is very weird coming from someone who's intervened, you know, who's commented on many other things. He's not usually shy of an opinion. No, no, no. So there was a lot of this. You also have people influenced by their domestic situation. Argentina has got the largest Jewish community in Latin America, somewhere between 300 and 400,000 people of, of Jewish heritage. So, as you might expect, they took a strong line. Uh, Chile, which is also careful in its respect of human rights, left-wing government, is nevertheless the largest Palestinian community in Latin America, and its um, comments were therefore more critical. Uh, there's another person in all this, um, normally considered a very right-wing authoritarian president is President Najib Bukele uh, of El Salvador, um, who who is himself of Palestinian extraction. Mm. Uh, he made a public statement along the lines that the best thing for the Palestinian cause would be for Hamas to cease, cease to exist. So there's a range of opinions a, a, a across the region. Uh, Latika, does this strike you? Uh, well, is there an echo here of what, of the dynamic we saw when Russia attacked Ukraine in February 2022? That the the, the Western world leapt as one to uh, Ukraine's side, and again, quite rightly, uh, only to turn around and find that quite a lot of what we apparently called the global South was going. Well, hang on there. 
Yes and no, Andrew. I think you're quite right to point out the differences between what we crudely term the global south, I guess. Someone needs to think of something else. We really do. Um, Because, you know, drawing on this Latin American example, we're seeing this across Southeast Asia, which has implications, I think, for Australia, a close ally of Israel and the United States. Malaysia today came out, Anwar Ibrahim came out and saying that he will continue to have a relationship with Hamas and that when Western leaders have been pressuring him to condemn the the attacks, uh, he told them no way. Um, Indonesia, of course, has a close relationship and is a big supporter of of Palestine. Of course, we do need to be very clear here that supporting Palestine, a two-state solution, is not the same as supporting Hamas necessarily. Um, But where I think it does diverge from the Russia-Ukraine example, and what I think is actually really, really worrying about this war, is that Ukraine had quite a unifying effect within the West at Mm. a societal and a political level. So you saw huge outbreaks of bipartisanship. Yes, some of that's now starting to fray in in the United States, even across Europe. But at a societal level, actually what you saw in a lot of these democratic countries was a a real rush back to their purpose and and their values. With Israel, it is the complete opposite within the West before we even get to the divisions with the global South. And so you're seeing this particularly on social media, but you're also seeing it played out in demonstrations, very ugly protests. There was one in Sydney where chants were heard of gas the Jews. I mean, slogans that we would have thought shouldn't be said since the Holocaust are being said in 2023 in front of the Opera House in Sydney, which was lit up in solidarity for Israel. So I think this is the most troubling aspect. This war could really not just fracture, but I think rupture a lot of that unity we found with Ukraine. And just finally on this, uh, Andrew, and to to pivot that back to South America, because South America is a good example of this because it is about as far from the Middle East as you can possibly get while remaining on this planet. There is, at the best of times, isn't there something about this conflict uh, that excites international opinion in a way that no other and even some much bigger conflicts do? I think I think that's right. I think also um, it's a conflict that's been going on through most of our generation. Um, you know, I, I claim to be the oldest person in the room, um, <laughs> but this goes back to 1967. It goes back even further, of course, and it's been watched by Latin America, uh, which has its own internal conflicts and which is quick to, uh, at least among the political class, is quick to rush to judgment. Um, a lot of the presidents now. Um, particularly Petro, uh, Lula in Brazil, uh, are people who were lefties in the 1970s um, and who, you know, remember the uh, Palestinian cause from that time. And for some of them, things haven't changed very much. They're still repeating, if you like, the the jargon uh, of that period. Well, it is hopefully not too glib or naive a declaration in the current context, but all conflicts end eventually, apart obviously from the ones which haven't yet. Reflection on what it takes to do that has been prompted by the death aged 86 of Marty Atasari, President of Finland from 1994 to 2000 and recipient of the 2008 Nobel Peace Prize. Here is Monocle Radio's obituary. You have to be able to listen so that we can find a common ground that makes it possible for everyone to feel at home and not stranger in the society we are trying to create. The list of internationally famous Finns is a short one and disproportionately populated by racing drivers. 
Racing drivers, especially Finnish racing drivers, are renowned for the steel nerves and cold blood necessary to calculate extremes of risk and reward in circumstances where getting it wrong could have calamitous consequences. The same qualities, as Marty Artisari understood, are often demanded of the peacemaking diplomat. For most people who become their nation's leader, that's the first line of their obituary. Artisari belongs to that exclusive echelon who became a head of state and then went on to better things. He was a perfectly serviceable president of Finland from 1994 to 2000, but his name was made by his prior and subsequent efforts as an arbitrator and mediator in wars, squabbles and disputes around the world. In 2008, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace. The citation noted his important efforts on several continents and over more than three decades to resolve international conflicts. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2008 to Marty Artisari for his important efforts on several continents and over more than three decades to resolve international conflicts. Marty Atasari was born on June 23, 1937, in Vipuri. That very fact may have endowed him with first-hand understanding of the upheaval war can create. Vipuri was captured by the Red Army during the Winter War of 1939-1940 between Finland and the Soviet Union. Finland retook it in 1941, but the Soviets recovered it in 1944. It has ever since been the Russian town of Vyborg. Artisari described himself as an eternally displaced person. Artisari spent his childhood further north in Kuopio and then much further north in Oulu. After completing his national service, he set himself on a career as a schoolteacher. But in the early 1960s, a stint working on a Swedish educational project in Karachi gave Artisari an expanded idea of his possible horizons. On returning to Finland, he joined the Department for International Development Cooperation at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In 1973, he was dispatched to Dar es Salaam to be Finland's ambassador to Tanzania, also assuming responsibility for whatever Finnish interests were to be found in Mozambique, Somalia and Zambia. Possibly because there were no Finnish interests to be found in Tanzania, Mozambique, Somalia and Zambia, Artisari was able to establish a formidable local network, which backed him to become the United Nations Commissioner for Namibia. Artisari estimated his role in helping Namibia towards its eventual independence from South Africa in 1990 as his most important achievement. The grateful new country made him an honorary citizen. Back in Finland in the early 1990s, Artisari continued his upward progress through the foreign ministry's hierarchy, becoming its senior-most civil servant, while also overseeing the UN's faltering early efforts to stop Yugoslavia tearing itself to pieces. He became a popular figure in and around Finnish politics at a recession-struck time when popular figures in and around Finnish politics were thin on the ground. The Social Democratic Party drafted him to be its candidate in the 1994 presidential election, the first in which Finns voted directly for their head of state. Artisari won handily in the second round. 
Even while serving as president, Artisari remained the freelance diplomat. In 1999, he led efforts to end the war over Kosovo, negotiating directly with Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic in tones of characteristically Finnish plain speaking. When Milosevic quibbled at NATO's final ultimatum, Artisari told him bluntly, this is the best you can get, it's only going to get worse for you. After leaving politics, Artisari brought the same no-nonsense outlook to bear on conflicts in places as various as Aceh, Iraq, the Balkans, the Horn of Africa and Northern Ireland. He founded the Crisis Management Initiative, an NGO which promoted dialogue and mediation. His views on conflict resolution continued to be sought. Finns have a word which describes their distinctive national mindset, Sisu. It's not easy to translate precisely, but it describes a sort of utilitarian pragmatism. Say what needs saying, and very often no more than that, do what needs doing as thoroughly as you can do it, and don't make a fuss, on the grounds that fuss rarely helps. Sisu is a creed generally, by definition, practiced rather than preached, and Marty Artasari applied it to diplomacy as doggedly and dauntlessly as Mika Hakkinen or Kimi Raikkonen applied it to the racetrack. Even if building workable solutions is difficult, Artisari once wrote, it is no excuse not to try. What I am feeling now can only be compared with the joy I have felt when seeing the changes that peace has brought to the lives of the people. When people who have endured wars and crises begin to build their lives in an atmosphere of peace, when faith in the future returns. Monocle's obituary for Marty Artisari, who has died at the age of 86. Listening to that were our panellists. Um, Latika, first of all, that line of his at the end, there's no excuse not to try. Um, it's it's hard not to look at what has happened in the Middle East in the last week and a half or so and think, is this the consequence of everybody just deciding that it had all got too hard and that there was no mileage in this and really why bother? Well, I mean, it's so long between 1993 and the Oslo Accords, isn't it? And mm. today, uh, Andrew, I mean, what is it? 30 years. Exactly, exactly. that. Exactly. Um I think his ambition is one that is perhaps a little lost in the volume of content we get about political reporting and geopolitics these days, because that ambition strikes me as noble as the ambition that deterrence can prevent war. And once conflict begins, the aim should always be how we can settle without, of course, compromising, you know, for example, Ukraine's sovereignty in the event of Russia. But what a wonderful human. What a wonderful outlook on life, roaming around the world as an outsider from his own tiny country. Um, some might say some would feel the same from, from smaller countries when they go out into the world. And uh, it's it's wonderful to see that he was finally recognised and also a futurist in his views on particularly Finland joining NATO. Well, indeed. Um, Andrew, is there, uh, is there... It's a question that often gets asked or pondered about the Nordic countries, not least due to the legacy of Marti Artasari, but do the Nordic countries have a natural advantage in peacemaking, either because they're relatively small and inoffensive, no-one's really got anything against them, 
Or is it just that peculiarly boneheaded mindset they do possess? I think they do have an advantage for the first reason that, that you gave, that they're not great powers. Mm. And, and being not a great power is helpful if you're trying to get negotiations going, get people talking to each other, facilitating um, discussions. But I also think, um, I know it's hard to generalize, there is um, the possibility that they have that prominent role because they're actually quite good at it. <laughs> uh, they're quite skillful at it. Um, I was reading uh, in preparation for this, um, I think it is Norway has something like 120 diplomats involved in 40 international disputes and they are trying to broker agreements on them. Uh, I know some in, in Latin America, for example. Um, and it struck me that um, if you were doing some sort of crazy cost-benefit analysis in you know, how a country can best promote itself internationally, the salaries of those um, 40 diplomats uh, are probably giving massive return on the long term for you know, um, the Scandinavian countries' sort of international standing. Is it, though, Latika, a question of timing um, that you need to you need to pick your moment to turn up and say, all right, let's talk about this? I'm, I'm reminded of a phrase used a couple of times. We've spoken to Jonathan Powell, the British diplomat, Tony Blair's former chief of staff who helped broker the, the, the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. And the phrase he uses, it's, if, if I can remember this correctly, it's, it's the perceived mutually hurting stalemate. Mm. You get to a point where everybody kind of realises this is just going nowhere. And are we just going to spend another generation doing that, it, doing this rather? It, it does seem incredible that the Middle East has apparently not arrived at that point. It does. And you do have to wonder if that is true on application for that continent, because it seems enmity, rivalry and bitterness just continue to rage across the Middle East and, and govern it. Having said that, I mean, you then take a step back and you look at the enormous progress that was being made with the Abraham Accords. Mm. And actually, there you have an example of very good dif diplomacy stepping in before, um, you know, to, to really unfreeze relations before it got to anything worse or, or more hot. And arguably, that's been a big factor in Hamas's decision to attack Israel. So I think... I think diplomacy is a bit underrated um, in, in these days where we're talking a lot about hard military assets in terms of soft and hard power. But I think this example really does show this, the benefit of a country picking its strengths in how it wants to project globally. And I think Britain could learn a lot from this as it tries to reassess its place in the world after Brexit and its assets and what it can meaningfully offer. I think it can offer a lot, but it does need to pick its strengths and really go for those. Well, let us now audaciously consider whether there might be overarching conclusions to be drawn from two elections at the weekend in countries which have little in common beyond the hemisphere in which they happen to be, though only just in the case of one of them. And this may be just about sticks. Both have plumped for centre-rightish leaders with a background in business and little experience in politics. Ecuador has elected as its new president, Daniel Noboa, the 35-year-old heir to the Bonita Bananas fortune, while New Zealand has chosen as its Prime Minister Christopher Luxon, former CEO of Air New Zealand. Um, Andrew, first of all, you mentioned earlier uh, El Salvador's hipster tyrant, President uh, Nayib Bukele. Um, 
I was reading recently of a poll taken in Ecuador earlier this year in which he was by some margin the most popular politician in Ecuador. Uh, Ecuadorians understandably, given their current travails, quite keen on his idea of just locking up anybody who even looks like they might be in a gang and then hurling the key into the nearest available swamp. Um, Has Daniel Noboa been elected by Ecuadorians basically hoping he will turn into Naib Bukele? Um, Up to a point, yes. Um, I think there are two major headlines for why he won the election. One is that the electorate thinks he will do better on the economy uh, Mm. than the current government and uh, its left-wing predecessors. Um, And the other is that um, they hope he will reduce the level of violence in in the country. Um, And that's something that they are focusing on. That's why Bukele is so popular. Um, This is very much a a double-edged sword because Bukele's popularity is based on locking up more than 70,000 people, 2% of the adult population of the country, which is the highest imprisonment record globally uh, or one of the highest anyway. Um, That has involved very serious violations of human rights, but at the same time it's popular because Mm. it looks as if the president is doing something, Um, the presence of the gangs on the streets has been reduced and the population says um, this is this is a real change. Uh, just to follow that up, Andrew, uh, Naboa has gone as far as saying he wants to put the most violent criminals on, well, prison hulks, basically. He wants to park them on ships somewhere out in the Pacific, which I'm sure will be hugely popular uh, with Ecuadorian voters. But is that actually viable? Um Open to debate. He's also promised lots of other things. He'll be using technology. He'll be using drones. Um, He'll be reinforcing security in ports, which are used for for cocaine smuggling. Uh, But the reality is that um, the forces leading to greater violence in Ecuador are very hard to resist. Uh, One of the major things that is happening is that the cocaine trade, normally associated with Colombia, is moving south. Mm. So uh, there are some incredible statistics that show that more than a third of Colombia's total cocaine production is now flowing out through Ecuador. Uh, Pacific ports from there heading north, some of it uh, heading south and and, and to the Atlantic. Um, That is a tripling of cocaine traffic through Ecuador. And there's this dark uh, statistical comparison. There's been a tripling in the homicide rate. The homicide rate in in Ecuador go back three years. It was something like seven or eight per 100,000 inhabitants. And it's now tripled to about 21, 22 per 100,000 inhabitants, which is much closer to the average in places like Colombia and Mexico, which have uh, incredibly serious um, drug cartel problems. Um, Latika, in the absence of an obvious seamless link between Ecuador and New Zealand, I'm just I'm just going to leap into it. I think it's fair to say lower degree of difficulty uh, in terms of, of running the place. Um, what strikes you as the reason, though, for uh, Christopher Luxon's victory? Was this a resounding vote for the forces of conservatism in New Zealand, or was this New Zealanders saying we've had enough of Labour and we'd like to give someone else a crack, just the basic normal pendulum swing? Very much the latter. Christopher Luxon, and I I know him, I interviewed him when he was here um, last year, 
is a very centre-right, centrist kind of leader. Mm. I would say more in the John Key mould than, than anyone. So you're thinking uh, fairly progressive, economically right, rather than hard-right populist here. And Luxon has been campaigning with a slogan of back on track, which is essentially speaking to this idea that the cost of living has gone up enormously in New Zealand. Housing in particular was the most acute issue. And New Zealand uh, Labor had promised to build 100,000 houses and that just had not materialised. So after several terms of Labor, they were booted out. But I must say the swing was quite stunning. Even in Jacinda Ardern's uh, old seat, previously held by Helen Clark. I think that had been a Labor-held seat since the 40s. There was even a possibility that uh, National could have taken that. Um, It's still unclear whether that will actually fall. But we are talking about some staggering rejections here Mm. of, of Labor. And it does really underline, I think, how much Ardern's popularity overseas was missed about how unpopular she was at home. <laughs> she was very Obama-esque in that way, you know. She was liked overseas a lot more than the people who actually had to live under her policies. I mean, Christopher Luxon's accession, though, Latika, is also uh, evocative of a more recent American political phenomenon, and this is the idea of somebody with a background in business uh, breezing into politics, uh, making lots of airy management-speak riddled claims about how it's all basically the same thing. There's a fairly mixed record on that, it's fair to say. Yeah, there is. And I'm personally, as someone who's covered politics all my career, I'm very dubious and sceptical about how much business figures can transfer to politics. They're two very, very different skills. In Luxon's case, he made a lot of gaffes during the campaign. One, he was asked about um, how much do you spend on food a week, obviously going to the cost of living issue that is plaguing so many Western countries at the moment. And he said uh, about 60 bucks. Now, I don't know about you, Andrew, but I'm not betting that he's buying his own groceries for 60 bucks a week there. Um, I don't think is anybody in New Zealand buying their groceries for 60 bucks a week. It is not a cheap country to visit. It is not. And so he he did, you know, if if Labor uh, wasn't as unpopular, he could have really uh, jettisoned himself there. But he survived and he is the new Prime Minister. And uh, I think actually he will be one of those John Key rather than to go across the ditch, uh, Malcolm Turnbull types, who was not so great uh, coming from business into politics. Uh, just to go back finally on this one, Andrew, to Daniel Naboa, there's an, another element there as well. And this is, there's been echoes of this in recent years in the United States and indeed here in the United Kingdom. And it's related a bit to what Latika was saying about wanting to look like you're in touch with the ordinary person. Um, Daniel Naboa is not just tolerably well off. Uh, He is monumentally wealthy. Um, Why has that not been more of a a strike against him as far as Colombian voters, it's not Colombian, Ecuadorian voters are concerned? I think it's probably because he's um, followed quite a crafty uh, electoral strategy, which has been to let the differences on the left of the spectrum and the candidate he defeated uh, to play on those to give very few interviews, um, to put out some sort of general statements, um, and that this seems to have worked for him. Um, So the whole question of possible conflict of interest, um, his family fortune is close to a billion dollars. He is the richest businessman in in Ecuador. Um, He's kind of... um, 
got through and won the elections without being really scrutinized on whether there'd be a conflict of interest with his companies and, and government policy. Um, he has to take some pretty hard uh, economic decisions. Um, Ecuador's running a big deficit. It's a dollarized economy. He needs to raise funds and he needs to consider tax reform, uh, whether he will actually do so and how that will affect his his companies um, has yet to be seen. Well, finally, and this really is a proper and finally story, a splendid example of the self-satirising news headline. Earlier today, the regular monthly chartered train which whisks MEPs and European Parliament officials between Brussels and Strasbourg was the victim of a switching error which saw it diverted to Marne-le-Vallée, the station which serves Disneyland an institution which bears no similarity to the European Parliament as, yes, strap yourselves in. One is an absurd, baffling and expensive circus populated by ludicrous caricatures nobody but a child could possibly take seriously. The other is Disneyland. Here all week, try the straightened bananas. Um, Latika, there's a serious question at the heart of this, which is why does this Parliament just not pick a city? This is ridiculous. I know, I don't understand. But, I mean, you'd be asking me to try and understand uh, the entire European Union. (laughs) I think... Not even you could explain that to me, Andrew Muller, as uh, fine as an explainer as you are of things. I, I, I would struggle. Has this ever made sense to you, Andrew, the idea of just like shuttling back and forth between two apparently randomly chosen cities in Western Europe? Um, well, certainly it's been tried in Latin America. Um, <laughs> and in fact, um, uh, welcome to Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, um, which was worked out uh, as being the geographic centre of the country. So they built it there and they moved Congress, bureaucracy, government from Rio, beautiful city, uh, you know, on the beaches to uh, the middle of a hot and sweaty tropical well, forest. I think that's the same as Canberra, We did exactly it? the same yeah. thing in Australia. To stop Sydney and Melbourne squabbling amongst themselves, we picked a bunch of perfectly good sheep paddock in the middle of nowhere uh, and, and, and sent all our civil servants and politicians to live in it. Um, we, we did want to sort of try and broaden this story out somewhat to your own life experiences. And before we do that, credit where due uh, to the MEPs on the train who were very quick to get all the Mickey Mouse Parliament jokes in before anybody else did. So. I, thought, I thought this was wonderful. <laughs> and, and I must shout out to Eddie Wax at Politico who's finished his article on this with the concluding line of Donald Duck was contacted <laughs> for comment. I mean, it's a work of art. Uh, but we did want to ask you, and I'll ask you first, Latika, have you ever been diverted through no fault of your own somewhere unlikely, amusing, etc.? Yes. Well, once when there was about two centimetres of snow, um, I was flying home to London from Finland and ended up uh, going via Newcastle, staying the night in Newcastle, UK, and then getting the 6am Virgin train home uh, to London. So got back to London via Finland, uh, via New, New, Newcastle from Finland, I think around 22 hours later. Did the Virgin train actually leave and arrive on time? It did because this was several years ago when <laughs> we could actually count on getting on a train on the UK, in the uh, UK. But, but there is something... I don't know whether it's infuriating or not, Andrew, that, that when the trip just gets delayed, when everything just goes askew and you're caught between just being incredibly angry and yet realising there is not the least thing I can do about this. It, it doesn't compare with Latika's Odyssey, but I was thinking about this. <laughs> I had no choice but to think about things. Uh, just the other week when 
I reached that moment of zen when I realised I had been sitting on the tarmac in an aeroplane so long that the time at which the plane was supposed to have landed uh, had just passed and we had not as yet taken off. (laughs) There's something about that. But surely in your experience of attempting to travel around South America of all places must have ended up in some locations you did not actually set out to visit. Uh, Correct. Uh, My story, in (laughs) fact, is uh, being in La Paz, capital of Bolivia, in one of the highest cities in the world at some point in the 1980s. And I fell in with a bad crowd of almost exclusively male journalists uh, who were all drinking heavily. At that altitude. At that altitude. Mm. And they kept saying, I was the kind of the the, uh, foreigner amongst them, the gringo, (laughs) English-speaking foreign media. And they kept saying, let's show the gringo, let's show him that special place. Oh, we'll take him there. So we jumped, we piled into two cars and drove off into the night for, I think it was about an hour. I had no idea where we were going. And we eventually ended up in a sort of sleazy bar on the outskirts of uh, La Paz. Uh, and I thought, what have, what are they getting me into here? There was a, a landlady. They were sort of whispering to her. And eventually she pounced on me <laughs> and produced a karaoke machine. Oh, dear Lord. Which was the first they claimed ever to have reached Bolivia. Oh, that's wonderful. A microphone was shoved at me and I had to sing Guantanamera or some other such song to my intense embarrassment. (laughs) Uh, We will not ask you to replicate the feat right now. Uh, That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Latika Burke and Andrew Thompson, thank you for joining us. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.